Thank you, everyone, for coming and tuning in, both live and unlive. I mean, um, out there in the internet, where the undead live, the internet never sleeps. Only the shadow knows if you're listening or not. Jaya Radha Madhava Kunjabi Hari Excellent Bhaktin Kim Jaya Radha Madhava Kunjabi Hari Gopi Jana Vala Bhagavana Dadi Jaya Gopi Jana Vala Bhagavana Dadi Jashoda Nandana Vajajana Ranjana Jashoda Nandana Vajajana Ranjana Jamuna Jamunati Ravanachari Jaya Radha Madhava Kunjabi Hari Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare, Hare Rama, Hare Rama, Rama Rama, Hare Hare. Oh, much better. Krishna, Krishna, Hare Hare, Hare Rama, Hare Rama, Rama Rama, Hare Hare.
Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare, Hare Rama, Hare Rama, Rama Rama, Hare Hare. Krishna, Krishna, Krishna. She, she, Radha Kavachanjiki. She, she, Radha Ki. Srila Prabhupada ki, Srila Bhakti Siddhanta ki, Guru Paramparara ki, Iskan Gurabhinda ki, Sri, 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 Mad, Bhagavatam, Gantaraja ki, O Ravimanandi, all glories to the assembled devotees, all glories to the assembled devotees, all glories to the assembled devotees. All glories to the lotus feet of Sri Guru and Sri Goranga. We'll try to speak properly into the microphone today. Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya. Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Srimad Bhagavatam Canto 12 Chapter 9, text numbers 10 through 19. So we have <laughs> something on the board. We have chapter 8 and 9. Chapter 9, checks in. So we have checks in. Hmm? Oh, she's getting it. Bhakti Kim is ever enthusiastic, young, has a smile, works fast. All that good stuff we used to be able to do. <laughs> huh? Maybe. I might want to keep it and glorify myself all day, having obtained the mercy of Krishna. <laughs> yeah, don't worry, I'll actually look for you guys and, and give them to you. Okay, text number 10. I'll just read the words and repeat them and then we'll chant the verse. This is where the two of you repeat the word. Prigushreshta. 
Pushpabhadra Tate Mune Upasinasya Sanjayam Brahman Vayur Abun Mahan Tasjaikadabrigushreshta Pushpabhadra Tate Mune Upasinaya Sandayam <coughs> Brahman Vayurabhun Mahan Taishyaikada Brigusheshta Pushpabhadrata Temune Upasinasya Sandhyayam Brahman Vayurabhunman Please repeat. Tastyaikadadbhigusheshta Pushpapadratatemune Upasanasya Sandhyayam Brahmavayurabhunmahan Word for word, Tasya, while he, Ekada, one day, Bhrigusheshta, O best of the descendants of Bhrigu. Yeah, very good. Pushpabhadra Tate on the bank of the river Pushpabhadra Mune the sage Upasinasham was performing worship Sanjam sorry Sanjayam at the juncture of the day. Brahman, O Brahmana, Vayu, a wind, a boot, a rose, Mahan, great, a great wind suddenly arose. Translation, by the disciples of Srila Prabhupada. Actually, there are only translations today. We don't have a purport. So technically, I can just walk out as soon as I finish reading it. But I won't do that. And I'll explain why as we go along. But please repeat. O Brahmana Sonaka, best of the Bhrigus, one day, while Markandeya was performing his evening worship on the bank of the Pushpabhadra, a great wind suddenly arose. Ooh. You see how beautiful this Bhagavatam is. There's always a story and it's always you know, sets the scene and then it goes into it. So here's this sage sitting peacefully 
at the evening sanjaya, which is around, just around sunset, there's about a 90-minute period, Brahma Mahurta, and then there's the sunrise sanjaya, which is one of the junctions of the day, when day turns, when night turns to day. Then there's noon, sanjaya, the middle of the day, and then sanjaya in the evening, rati sandra, which is at the sunset, when day turns to night. So he's in the third sanjaya, which in the, the Gavastika prayers we chant at Mangalarti, Dayam stuvam tasya trisanjam. We meditate Dayam Sudra on the spiritual master at the three sanjas, at the two junctions of the day. So, very important these sanjas. And for that matter, today is Akshaya Titreya, which is the third day after the Amivasa of this month, the, the new moon. And it is the day to start anything new. So if anybody wants to start something new today, because they might not have planned to build a new house or start a new business or begin traveling or do a Tirta Jatra or anything like that, start today with the commitment that I will follow the practices of Krishna consciousness and become Krishna conscious. And start today with that first step of moving forward towards Krishna. There's no other step you could take that would be more important. So, here the brahmana is sitting, meditating, and then all of a sudden, a storm starts coming in. A great wind starts blowing. You know, that happens. Then you see different other things. And we're going to hear that description of just how unique and interesting this particular storm is. So, I'll just read the translations. The wind, that wind created a terrible sound and brought in its wake fearsome clouds that were accompanied by lightning and roaring thunder. And that poured down on all sides torrents of rain as heavy as wagon wheels. Then the four great oceans appeared on all sides, swallowing up the surface of the earth with their wind-tossed waves. In these oceans were terrible sea monsters, fearful whirlpools, and ominous rumblings. Oh, actually there is one. Anyway, we'll read this whole section while we, we have it. The sage saw all the inhabitants of the universe, including himself, tormented within and without by harsh winds, the bolts of lightning, and the great waves rising beyond the sky. As the whole earth flooded, he grew perplexed and fearful. Here the word Chetravidyam refers to the four sources of birth for conditioned souls. Embryos, eggs, seeds, and perspiration. So he's talking about every living entity, okay? He's not just limited in terms of those great living entities called human beings. Text 14. Even as Markandeya looked on, the rain pouring down from the clouds filled the ocean more and more until the great sea, its waters violently whipped into terrifying waves by hurricanes, covered the earth's islands, mountains, and continents. Noah's Ark thing. The water inundated the earth, outer space, heaven, and the celestial region. Indeed, the entire expanse of the universe was flooded in all directions, 
And out of all its inhabitants, only Markandeya remained. His matted hair scattered, the great sage wandered about alone in the water as if dumb and blind. And it all started with a mysterious wind blowing in at the evening sandhya. His last moments of pure meditation before, what do they say in English? All hell broke loose. Tormented by hunger and thirst, attacked by monstrous makaras and timagila fish, and battered by the winds and waves, he moved aimlessly through the infinite darkness into which he had fallen. As he grew increasingly exhausted, he lost all sense of direction and could not tell the sky from the earth. At times he was engulfed by the great whirlpools. Sometimes he was beaten by the mighty waves. And at other times the aquatic monsters threatened to devour him as they attacked one another. Sometimes he felt lamentation, bewilderment, misery, happiness, or fear. And at other times he experienced such terrible illness and pain that he felt himself dying. Countless millions of years passed as Markandeya wandered about in that deluge. His mind bewildered by the illusory energy of Lord Vishnu, the Supreme Personality of Godhead. So that was text number 19. And starting with 20, the Bhagavatam kind of begins another story. Not another story but another part of this story because right now all that's being described is this is the dissolution of the universe partial dissolution because the universe stays intact it just becomes inundated with water completely filled up with water and of course then you have to think just how do you drain a universe you see how special you see how special Krishna is you know, it's supposed to, it's described as a globe, egg-shaped globe, and all the things within the universe are within that globe. So somehow, you have to puncture it to get all the water out, because the sun is not even visible now, because the clouds are so thick that the sky and the earth, and which is just water, you know, is all covered by the same shadow. So you don't see anything. It's just like in the middle of the day, a big storm comes in and all of a sudden looks dark. But not dark as in night dark. Dark as in ominous. This isn't supposed to be dark at this time dark. So it becomes a little frightening. I grew up on the coast and you used to see clouds like this blow in. And it's funny, you can actually... First you would experience the wind and you'd see the clouds coming over the horizon then you'd see the rain coming across the water and and you could not see into the rain like you could. All the things on the other side of the rain would disappear in the, uh, yeah, like a curtain of illusion. So this is what Mark and Day is experiencing because he asked the Lord, can I, like, experience your illusory energy? So 
as you're hearing his description of how much he's suffering, he's also not remembering Krishna. And it's not that he can't remember Krishna, because if we remember yesterday, he was meditating and offering all these beautiful objects and etc. within his mind. So he had no reason not to be able to continue to do that. He doesn't need any facility, he just needs a mind, which he has. But that mind is so entirely covered and disturbed by the material illusory energy that he's not thinking anything, but wow, I'm miserable. Now, you can say, as atheists will say, you can be an atheist if you want today, and say, well, yeah, this is all allegory, explaining how the material energy works within our life while we're here on this earth, doing our work in some demonic, semi-civilized context. And I I know even yesterday during the discussion with Antayami Mataji's class and etc., we spoke about the how destructive the economic situation that we live through in these days really is. And to to move back another few days to Saturday in Vaisheshika's presentation on book distribution, the point is, he says, how to sell the books, the Bhagavad Gita on its own merits, he says, you know, he says, hi, I'm from California. Where are you from? Texas. Wow, great. I like Texas. These are books on yoga and meditation that help us get out of stress. You've heard of stress, right? And of course, only a complete blithering idiot would say, no, what's stress? They all know what stress is. Why do they know what stress is? Because this world is stressful. I mean, the kind of stress that Mark and Dayarishi is going through is this huge monster fish. Prabhupada described a Timagila fish was large enough to swallow a whale. Now, he didn't say this whale or that whale, but all whales are big. They're all bigger than us, right? So they must be big. So these big, huge fish attack each other to eat because they obviously have big appetites, so they need a big fish to eat themselves. So it's quite difficult. And sometimes they'd, oh, look, a snack floating in the water here, Mark and Dayarishi. <laughs> and they come after him. And how do you outswim a fish? You don't. But, unbeknownst to you and unbeknownst to Mark and Dayarishi, Krishna protects him. He has no control over his situation. Just like a piece of driftwood gets thrown around in the water and the tides, as we can experience if you grew up around open water, um, or if you grow up around just running water rivers and things like that, you'll see that Things will float in it and hit the bank and stop and wash out again and go somewhere else and get in a little whirlpool or, or a, oh, what do they call that? There's a term for that where, where the water flows around a little point and there's a backflow of it. No, tide pools are really cool. You can have those in Fiji. You can... Go out and swim in them at low tide. You just swim in the coral tile pools and it's like living, it's like swimming in an aquarium. <laughs> yeah, it's like, whew, 
ecstatic. But no, there's something, it's, it's like a, it's not a backwash, a backwash maybe, but you know, where the water just goes opposite direction and fills in behind the point, you know. So there's all kind of ways in which the water moves the way it wants to move, and whatever's in it gets moved around with it. They don't get a separate choice. And this is the material world. We're thrown from one misery to the next. You don't have to believe it, but we are. We can say, I'm making this much money and therefore I'm happy. I don't believe you. Because according to the Bhagavatam, money isn't the source of happiness. So how can you be happy from something that doesn't produce happiness? It may produce a certain amount of satisfaction or a sense of accomplishment. And that may please you and you can say you're happy, but the actual money itself is not producing happiness. It's the concept and construct of what you feel you can do with that money that you take some solace in. Now, if that money is obtained at the cost of civilization, how good will that ever be? Right? I mean, we we don't know. Just like a butcher is happy with his money, except that he has to kill animals to get it. And the karmic reactions to that will make him suffer in this life and the next. You know, an IT person is riding away everybody else's brain. He's got to suffer for that. You know, there's just no way around it. You can say, you know, like what's that guy, Ellison, right? The guy that uh, in, that that designed and created um, Oracle, which is the business database that's so difficult to get out of now that even though they're having better systems, they haven't figured out a way to transfer the um, the huge files that the databases hold into something else. So they have to stick with the old form because you can't do something with it at this point. They have better ways of doing the data and it works more efficiently, but you can't transfer the, type, the amount of data a company like ExxonMobil or Ford or, or um, Boeing has into a file that can be transferred into another database altogether, another format. It's too risky because you may lose so much of that data. We know that, even on a small basis, right? It's interesting. But it's a source of misery. You can't deny it. And if we're actually honest with ourselves, we know we're actually destroying peaceful life in this world by all of this stuff. We're, we're over, um, what do they call it? overwhelmed by media and now we can't even trust it. So many people out there, oh, that's just false news. And it's true. I'll give you an example that that really tickled me and, and showed me how weak I am. Um, an advertisement for a company called Naked Juice. Right? They show a bottle of Naked Juice in somebody's hand, a woman's hand. 
And there's a caption. My boyfriend sent me an email or text, some kind of thing. said, I want a picture of you getting naked. This is what I sent him. was her picking up a bottle of naked juice. Now, on an advertising level, think of the context of what's going on. And the average person who's tinking around on the internet would think, ooh, or ah, or ugh, yeah, but, wow, that's news. And then you open it up and say, oh, naked juice, how cool. What a, what a twisty, wonderful, interesting, and, and uh, attractive type of ad, you know. Makes it all simple and innocent because it's nice and pure and fresh and organic and has no ingredients that wouldn't want you wouldn't want your babies to drink and it puts you in this whole wonderful space. What does that do to your mind? What does that say about your mind that you would think, what is this? You know, and it, and it's it's all sorts of stuff all over the place. You know, like even something as innocuous as a Reader's Digest, which is still out there in publication. Long story behind that, but it's a very Christian um, magazine. Everything in it is nice and uplifting and and religion based and and like that. But they have these long articles that are just advertisements. And in tiny, tiny, tiny print, either at the bottom of the type of the page, it says, advertisement. And if you read the fine print, you'll know that, I don't want to read this, it's an advertisement. But if you don't read it, then you start reading the article and find out, wow, I might have that disease too. Oh, this has a solution. I can buy this drug and I'll be happy. Ooh, maybe I should get that drug. I'll have to talk to my doctor. Of course, now you don't have to talk to your doctor. You have to go online. Your doctor says, sure, I'll prescribe that to you because they pay me to tell you to do that. How are you supposed to live in peace within the ocean of the Internet? I mean, it's all-encompassing. Just like Mark and Dea Rishi. You don't know which way to turn. You don't know what's true. You don't know what's false. You don't know what's dangerous for your consciousness until it hits you. And you realize, oh my. I mean, I'm not some Luddite. I have a smartphone. I've been using the internet. I've had web pages since it was text only. And back in the early 90s when most of the devotees I know weren't even uh, out of school yet. <laughs> I had web pages. And now uh, they used to get hits, funnily. But there was so little out there then. That just a paragraph about what you're doing would, would show up. I'm sure it's, it would, you would have to spend weeks trying to dig down through all the stuff that's happened since 1993 on the internet to find them, but they're still out there. They don't go away. You know, what to speak of, consider where the internet came from. Where'd it come from? Who invented the internet? Yeah, nobody cares anymore. Huh? Hmm? 
No, it was made by the military. It is a weapon. It is a faster way to communicate how to kill people. Mentally, physically, whatever you want. It was designed by the military. A fellow named Olmsted, and I used to know most of them because I went to school with some of the people that whose fathers were working on this stuff, you know, and and different other things. I had contacts with some interesting... I have family members that are really big in the military. Not me. I wasn't big on it. When I was growing up, people were shooting each other in Southeast Asia, and, and I just thought that was an entirely bad idea to go anywhere where you knew there would be someone pointing a gun at you. I mean, I was taught to stay out of those kind of neighborhoods <laughs> when I was young. And I, whew, you know, it was weird to grow up in that time. And I went to school with many, many young people, boys and girls, even some, not so many girls, but boys, that left body parts in Southeast Asia. Yeah, it's bad. It's very bad. So it put a very interesting impression that nothing in this world that is being led by the military is going to work out well for you. Including the internet. And if a government designs it, there must be some insidious purpose in what government does. Um, serve slash control the population. How do you control the population, keep them happy? Give them the basics. So we have the basics, and all of them are monitored by the Internet. I mean, now the meter readers don't have to read your meter. They just drive by, and whatever the meter says is on the Internet, and they pick it up Wi-Fi-wise, and then they charge you whatever you want. They don't ever look at your meter, even to see if it's telling the truth, which is cool. We paid $25 a month for water for three years because they never fixed it. <laughs> Everybody else all around my neighborhood were paying 60 70 like that, and we were paying $25, and we reported it, and they said okay, but it took them three years to change the meter. <laughs> I don't have any complaint. I like the Internet. Works for me. And again, I'm not against these things, but... Krishna is described in this Bhagavatam how Kali Yuga works. Within this canto, he explains how this is work. And now he's reiterating the difficulties of the illusory material energy with a story of one time during one millennium, one Rishi who is a pure devotee. He's worshipping Krishna perfectly in his mind every day. You know how hard that is? In deity worship, you're supposed to first do manasapuja. You worship the Lord in your mind, and then you physically go and do the puja. It's much harder, and it's considered more pure, this manasapuja. I mean, I don't even know if they teach that anymore. But that's actually what the, the padatis describe, deity worship. First you do manasapuja. You do the, all the puja in your mind, item by item by item, because then your mind is focused and fixed on 
what you're going to do for the Lord. So Mark and Rishi is at that level, but he says, you know, I never experienced the material illusion because he's not an illusion. So he thinks, but I'd like to know what it is. Right? Just like almost every child that grows up, America, India, China, Africa, whatever, at some point they think, I wonder what alcohol is. I wonder why some of my friends or my parents or the uncles or aunties, why do they smoke? What's in it? Because, I mean, a child only does things for pleasure. You know, try to take away their toy and just see how angry they get. You know, they're always just seeking their pleasure. So they think there's pleasure in this. Must be. Otherwise, why would an adult smoke? <laughs> you know, I mean, even a child knows it's going to kill you. <laughs> because they advertise it, they have to. In addition to saying, this will make you cool, this will make you manly, this will make you sophisticated... And all these advertisements and all that does will make you dead. And, and it's a horrible slow death <laughs> through slow poisoning. I mean, this is the illusion of the material world. The ultimate illusion in marketing is that the tobacco industry can legally sell poison that if used as directed, you will die from it. And it's a billion dollar industry. Multi-billion dollar industry. They're selling you something that will kill you, but only if you use it as directed. And you buy into it because you're really smart, right? No, it's because you believe the marketing. I mean, marketing is insidious. It came up twice this week, both yesterday, the corporate thing with Antoyami, and then on Saturday, or Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Sunday, Monday, Monday? What's the day? Tuesday? Must have been last Friday, Dharma gave class. And he brought up marketing. I mean, marketing is real simple. The way you get your clients is that they come to you and they want you to, you know, help sell their product. Right? So what does a marketer need to know in order to sell their product? Because it doesn't matter what product it is. But what is the piece of information that a marketer needs to know? Yeah, well, that's a good point. She, Kim is saying, what's the emotional connection to it? In other words, it's, um, it's literally how do you want people to think about your product? has nothing to do with truth or falsity of the product. I mean, we think if we smoke, we're cool, we're profitable, we're sophisticated, we're so many things, but actually we're stupid. Because who in their right mind would take poison? I mean, you tell me. So marketing is such that... They have you think that taking poison is a good idea. That's how complete and interesting the marketing industry is. And guess who picked up on that perfection of marketing that the tobacco industry has? 
who also uses the same tactics. Huh? No, that's just poison. Same old thing. The industrialized food industry. They, there's a book out there if you want to get into this. It's called Fat, Salt, and Sugar. Sugar, Salt, and Fat. Yeah, Sugar, Salt, and Fat, I think. One of those, any of those three. And it's really funny because I used to tell my children that that's all I sell. I used to have the snack business, Indian snacks, and it's just, you know, the carrier is chickpea flour or puffed rice or, you know, poa, flat rice. But the the taste is salt, fat, and sugar. So she saw a book called that maybe four, four or five years ago. And she, she bought it simply because she just couldn't believe there was a book like that. <laughs> After growing up listening to me, you know. And um, I, I, I looked at it, and it was literally explaining how the food industry learned marketing techniques from the tobacco industry, who sells poison. Anybody noticing a connection yet? They're selling non-nutritional Produced food, industrialized food products that don't go bad, which means it's not food. If you have food, it will rot in a few days if you leave it on the counter. If it's not food, it won't have that quality. So they're selling you not food in the same marketing that the tobacco industry sells you poison. And people buy into it. The biggest, one of the bigger problems that I've seen, and I used to have a job that I walked in and out of people's houses, is ramen noodles. The package is only that big so they can handle all the chemicals on the ingredient list so that it'll fit in a nice place on the package because you have to put all those things in there. But you don't know what they're doing out there. Did you know that all beer in America by the Einheiser-Busch Company, the catalyst for the yeast to start growing is animal fat? And that animal fat doesn't just go away just because the yeast digested it. Yeah, raw, right out of buckets, right out of the big bins, right out of the meat industry. Straight from the slaughterhouse to you, to the beer vats. This is the material world. Wake up. And again, I'm really not trying to have anybody out, but this is reality. At least we should know what we're dealing with. We should know where we're living. And we should know why we should be Krishna conscious. There should be some impetus. Don't ever think you're doing okay in the material world. That's silliness. You're a fool if you think that. Oh, I'm doing okay in the material world. You know? Take the insurance industry, right? So many people work in that. I met one big, 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 uh, you know, very high-level executive vice president of one of the insurance companies, AIG, that almost went broke, except that they didn't have to pay off any of those claims. 
the government excused them, right, during the marketing of the packages of the housing that was all complete illusion, right? Yeah, that. They didn't have to pay off. All of those securities were insured by AIG, and they didn't have to do anything. They would have been bankrupted. So they said, oh, well, we can't lose a big company like that. They give us money. So, so what does insurance companies sell? They sell fear. Fear that something will happen to me and I won't be able to deal with it because I'm only a thinking human being. And therefore, let me buy insurance just in case. And the pride of the insurance companies is how not to pay off those claims. That's their business. How do we keep your money? How do we not give it back to you? And in what proportion should they give it back? The proportion that they made off of you? No. Only the proportion you basically paid in. They say they'll give you back more than you paid in, and that is kind of true, if you can make your claim work. Wow. Another one was really smart things for us to do because somebody in marketing told us it was the best thing we should do. Huh? <laughs> everything, 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 everything in this material world is illusory and temporary. Krishna tells us that 20 times in the Bhagavad Gita. But we think, except for what I do. And we have to do something. I get it. I mean, I, I did too. I worked in a com completely the most illusory, comp you know, thing in the world: television, media. There's nothing more illusory than that, right? And I took their money gleefully and gave it to my wife and children, the temple and devotees, freely. I was happy with that. But at least you should know that. It will not solve any problem. It is simply part of the illusory energy and that we are somehow learning to survive within it. Mark and Dea Rishi learned to survive by just the fact that he was in the ocean floating and no one can swim for a million years. Most people can't swim for more than three or four days. They gradually get so tired they sink. Or one of the fish eats them. Or both. That's the illusionary energy. We can't survive. But Krishna, Krishna, because Markandeya was his devotee, protected Markandeya Rishi. And we'll, that's what tomorrow's story starts. How he found Krishna in all this mess. But it wasn't until after millions of years floating around in the waves. Now, can you imagine how big some of these waves must have been? That they created huge whirlpools and stuff like that? Wow. Anyway, that's enough depressing news today. Anyone have any questions or comments? We only have one person here. Kim. Okay, so, so the question is, how does Mark and Dea Rishi, because I made this whole class around marketing and advertising, how does Mark and Dea Rishi believe there's something in the material? He doesn't. 
That's not what happened with him. He simply asked the Lord because he knows about it. What's it like to experience the materially, material illusion, illusory energy? What's it like? I'd, I'd like to know what it is. Because he doesn't experience it. So he asked the Lord personally, and the Lord, as we heard on Saturday, ruefully smiled. And Lord's like, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll show you because you asked. Because that's his devotee. Krishna, if you want to ask for this, then okay, fine, go do it. And Krishna knows he can use it in a good example of why not to want to ish, <laughs> be interested in the material illusory energy. So he gets stuck in an ocean with nothing but ocean. And there's at that point, there's nothing he can do about it but survive in complete fear. And anxiety. Does any of this sound familiar? Yeah, so like that. It wasn't, it wasn't that it, he was sold on the idea. He's just an intellectual. And he doesn't have personal experience of this particular aspect of the Supreme Lord and his energies. So he thought, can I experience that? I just want to understand what it's like. Now, unfortunately, maybe he asked at the wrong time. It was right about time for the dissolution of the universe. <laughs> Miscalculation on his part. There are other ways to experience the illusion, but this seemed to be a convenient opportunity. It's about to happen anyway. Oh, well. You know, either way, Krishna's in control. Mark and Rishi will live to tell the tale. Krishna knows that. So Kim is asking about the Timlagila fish that I mentioned. It's mentioned in the, the one of the verses, but Prabhupada described it. It was big enough to eat whales. So she's a little confused that, wow, nobody taught me that in school. We don't see all this stuff. Even now, I mean, one of the bigger things on, on television and the nature shows is showing what's going on in the bottom of the ocean. It's funny, we went all the way into space, landed on the moon, and still don't know what's in the in the, the Mariana Trench out there, and I think in the Pacific, the deep, deepest part of the ocean, we still don't know what's in there. And they're living entities that aren't crushed by the enormous pressure, whereas we can't build a ship strong enough to, you know, and a submersible strong enough to go there. But fish can live there. Worms can live there. Tiny little shrimp can live there. This is the illusory world. We can't figure out how a fish, something as simple as a fish, I mean, they're pretty low down on the evolutionary chain of, of consciousness. But they can live down there without being crushed. And they find things to eat down there. Still just as dangerous far as that goes. Yeah, we don't have to understand these things. We just have to understand Krishna places these things here that in every situation you could possibly consider they're living into these struggling for existence. Struggling for existence. Just like us. Except that we struggle for different way things and, and struggle in different ways. We struggle to get to work every day. Isn't it? Anybody can say, no, work is easy. I just turn my computer on at home and 
irrespective of what I'd rather be doing. I just work instead. Yeah, I mean, you can work from home, but you're at home. Why would you want to work there? You can go somewhere and work so you can leave it behind. But if you do it in your home, you can never leave it behind. Anytime you can turn your computer on. And after all, as long as I get my work done, I... You know, I mean, I agree. It's better than some things. I mean, I had a home-based business. It's nice, you know. It's, my idea of a commute was walking two doors down where I had my kitchen. Barefooted, because I had special shoes that I'd wear when I cooked. <laughs> That was my commute. <laughs> yeah, it was. Uh, but you know, it's not. I'm not saying I was doing better. But it, yeah, again, everybody has to get there and do something. You know, but you should understand what you're involved in. You're involved in the material world. You can't expect your Krishna consciousness to blossom into pure bhakti under those conditions. It improves and you get more advanced and all the other accoutrements that come with practicing pure devotional service. Rupa Goswami says in the Nectar of Devotion that, that um, devotional service is the beginning of all auspiciousness. So it will solve everything. But Krishna also says in the 12th chapter of the Bhagavad Gita, verse number 9, Nine, I think, or maybe ten, that um, if you can't just surrender to Krishna, which is all he asks you to do, which means, you know, like, don't go to work today, just serve Krishna, or tomorrow either, or that whole week, or next month. That's what Krishna wants us to do, surrender to him, and he maintains us like all the other animals out there. I mean, not without anxiety. He's maintaining Mark and Dearishi in a salt ocean full of waves and deadly fish and whirlpools. and But he's maintaining him. He's exhausted, but still there. Didn't die. <laughs> you know. But in that verse, it says, so you can't do that. Fine, then, you know, the next verse says, then follow the practices of bhakti yoga and you will develop a desire to obtain me. So the whole process of bhakti yoga is just to align us in a situation that we can surrender to Krishna. So our performance of bhakti yoga can be done, you know, during our working hours, while we're doing our working section of our life. All of these things. It's part of the bhakti yoga process. It's, it is. But it's a process of developing a desire for Krishna where we can give it all up. And don't think that renunciation isn't important. You don't have to do it, but it's important. The less you do in the material world, the more you can do for Krishna. That's important. And it certainly makes sense. Look how much time and energy you put in work. And, you know, that produces a beautiful income that we can raise our children on and give them all sorts of things and give them what we think they need and encourage them, pay for their education. So many wonderful things. It's not, I'm not trying to dissuade you from living. But you should understand where you're living. Here, Mark and Rishi has nothing but water to look at. He knows where he's living. He realizes that this is really bad. And it's dangerous. And he's exhausted. We'll find that out tomorrow. 
More so than it mentioned today. We'll see how it works. Okay? So, Gantaraj Shimon Bhagavatam Ki. Thank you everyone for listening. And again, don't take it personal that you're out there trying to survive in the material world. We're doing the same thing here. I, I did it for years. Don't do it anymore much. But um, I live simply. <laughs> Can't have all the accoutrements of the material world without money, that's for sure. So we make choices. And I respect those choices. I do. Yantara Shimon Bhagavatam Kijai.